Psalm 134 is the last of the songs of ascent. means like climbing up, like ascending a ladder or stairs or a mountain. Because these were psalms that were given to the nation of Israel to sing as they went from their homes up to Jerusalem to worship several times a year. And they would literally sing them as they walked along, as they traveled along. And so that's why they call them songs of ascent. This is the last one, sort of the benediction of all of them. And then uh, chapter 135 begins where 136 kind of caps it off in saying, you have a God who is loving and kind and gracious. But to put this all together for today to challenge us is my purpose. The fact is, Psalms 134 and 135 were given to the people to sing on behalf to encourage the priests, the Levites, and the servants in the temple. And you go, okay, we can go home because this isn't about us. It's about missionaries, it's about pastors, about full-time Christian workers, but it's not about us. We're not priests, we're not Levites, we don't serve in the temple, so why should we care about this? Well, guess what? We don't live under the law. We don't live where we go to a tabernacle or a temple to worship. Because we have something way better. The Apostle Peter probably puts us as good as anyone. John also did it. But here's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You also, referring to the church, anyone that's trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Guess what? It goes on in verse 9 to say, you are a royal priesthood. If you've trusted Christ, you're a priest. You've got privileges that the Levites never had. The sons of Aaron never had. The servants who served in the temple never had. In fact is, you should be, if you're a Christian, a spiritual leader in one way or the other. Why? Because you're a priest. What does a priest do? A priest comes on behalf of the people to God, brings the people to God. Guess what? That's our responsibility. I don't care if you call it local outreach. I don't care if it's teaching youth group or a Sunday school class or it's being a missionary. We are tasked by God as believers, as Christians, to bring people to God. That's what it's about. So we don't get off the hook. In fact, it's doubly true of us today because we have privileges they never had. We have the finished work of Christ. They only could look at a foreshadow of what Christ was going to do. And so we have things they never had. We are all to be serving the Lord. And by the way, it doesn't take out the idea that we are to encourage others to praise the Lord. Think about it this way. I believe I know why God put these two psalms in here to encourage the people, to encourage the leaders to praise the Lord. Can you imagine? Please don't get grossed out by this, but the Old Testament sacrificial system with the tabernacle and the temple was just a bloody mess. All day long, if you were a priest, you were slitting animals' throats, skinning them, 
butchering them in reality and then placing them on the offering. And by the way, if you think it smelled like a barbecue, some people have presented that way. No, we're talking burning flesh, not, not just a barbecue and some great hamburgers or some chicken barbecue or something like that. Not at all. This really wasn't all that good a smell. Not to us as humans. But God demanded a sacrifice. Can you imagine if you were a priest doing that day in and day out and day in and day out? You'd go, why don't these people quit sinning so I don't have to keep killing these animals and burning them? You get pretty discouraged after a while. Let's face it, you know what you're like, and they weren't any different than you. People continuously sin. Guess what? Priests never sat down. There were no stools, no benches, no place to sit down in the temple nor the tabernacle. Why? The work was never finished. So they needed encouragement. Now I grant it. I believe that you should encourage spiritual leaders. So if someone's a mentor to you or a teacher to you or a pastor or a missionary representing you in some other, by all means, write them, call them, encourage them because they can feel a little bit like that at times. Ministry's messy. You've heard me say that before. Never has changed. That's always been true. And it will always be true. Why? Because there's people involved. Just the way it is. Doesn't mean we stop. But sometimes we need encouragement. And so I encourage you to encourage others. Why? Because they, if they're a believer, like you, are a priest. So you should be, ultimately, encouraging one another. Huh. Not, a new te- not, not just a New Testament principle, which it does tell us that in the New Testament, but it's an Old Testament principle as well. And if you would with, uh, follow with me in Psalm 134, beginning in verse 1, it says, A song of ascents. Behold, bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord, who serve by night in the house of the Lord. The word bless is the word that we're going to look at first, but it's an act of adoration toward God and an act of benefit toward other men. We say, somebody blessed me by shoveling my snow or you know, bringing me some food when I was sick or, or whatever it happens to be, or they just came alongside of me and gave me a hug when I was feeling down. Whatever it is, that's to bless someone. And we are to bless God. We are to adore Him. It, it has the ideas of approval and endorsement and support. It includes acting and speaking well on behalf of the other person. In all cases, it emphasizes the value and the position of the receiver. So if it's God, he's the almighty God. Some of the things you were singing in the songs today came right from Psalm 135 today. Because he is the God above all gods, without a doubt. But he has that position, and he is of that value. There is no God that is higher than him. We are to bless him, and we are to bless other people. And it says here, bless him all servants of the Lord who serve by night in the house of the Lord. This isn't just the priests in the daytime, which I've already described, but there were priests, Levites, that had to stay all night. 
No street lights, none of that kind of stuff. They had to stay all night in the temple, temple or in the tabernacle. Why'd they have to do that? Somebody has to keep the fire going. Somebody has to make sure that less than scrupulous people don't break in and steal the very valuable pieces, uh, utensils that were used to worship God. There was a lot of gold, a lot of silver, a lot of bronze, a lot of expensive material in that whole thing. And there were priests who had to stay and serve all night long. Nobody knew who they were. It was dark out. It was a thankless job. You could go, why, what do I have to do? And start mumbling, grumbling, groaning, complaining, and all those kinds of things. He says, well, you need to encourage those people who are serving the Lord even when nobody else sees. But it doesn't stop there. And then it says in verse 2, lift up your hands to the sanctuary. Why do you lift up your hands? By the way, some of you would never raise your hands. That's okay. Some of you raise your hands all the, all the time. That's okay. Some of you say Amen. Some of you would never say amen. Some of you would clap if you would, uh, are praising the Lord, and some of you would never clap. You know what? I really don't care. You make it an issue, you've got a problem, and it's not with me or this church. It's just you've got a problem. You know what? Because God tells us all of those things. It doesn't say everybody has to do it, but here's what it says. It says, lift up your hands to the sanctuary. Why would you do that? Why would they be encouraging the leaders to lift their hands up? Because... Two things, at least two things, are symbolized by that. One is that we're pointing to God who is all-sufficient and meets all of our needs. He is the one above and beyond all the rest. His value is unsurpassed. On the other hand, when you lift up hands, by the way, if you shout amen or clap or raise your hands and you are hiding sin in your life and you're just hoping everybody thinks you're spiritual, you're a hypocrite. Sorry, but that's who you are, uh, and I would be exactly the same. Remember we talked about communion last week? If you take communion and you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, you're eating and drinking judgment. You're proclaiming his death until he comes. You're saying, Christ forgave my sin, but you know what? I'm doing whatever I want to do, and I don't care. You know, it's it's hypocritical. When our children were younger, we had two rules after supper. One, you have to ask to be excused. You don't just leave. And number two, you have to show us your hands. Now, eventually it got to be almost ridiculous. But in the beginning, especially when they were younger, may I please be excused? Yes, but show me your hands. And so they would put their hands up like this. Now, why? Well, when children start learning to eat, some adults do this too. You ever see me eat a hamburger? You'll know that I still need to do this. But the point is, You have food all over your face and on your hands and everything else, and you don't want them leaving the table with food on their hands smeared all over the rest of the house. So eventually it got to the point, may it please be excused and go like this, and you couldn't already see their hands. But that's when they got older. The point is this. If you raise your hands up, you're saying, I got nothing to hide. I'm not in the shadows doing one thing and here doing something different. I got nothing to hide. Lord, here they are. I got clean hands. Hopefully my heart is clean too. That's the whole thing. Lifting up hands. These people who served by night, most of them were priests. But do you know that there were just the regular people who went in and did exactly the same thing? And we know one of them by name. It's in the Christmas story. Her name is Anna. She was a widow. She was 85 years old. 
Her husband had died a long time before. And here's what it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 37. She never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. If her name would not be in the Bible, you would have never known that she did those kinds of things. But she did it behind the scenes on behalf of the people that she loved and the people that God loved. See, there are times when we need to encourage those uh, who are serving the Lord. And if you're a believer, you should be serving the Lord. My conclusion is if you're not serving the Lord and you're not a leader somewhere, it's about time you become a leader. We'll talk about that because your leadership may simply be your family. There are people in this congregation that said, my life is so overwhelmed because I'm the only Christian in my family, in my household, in my neighborhood, in my work, and I, don't, I just don't, you know what? You now have a one-family, one-workplace, one-neighborhood ministry area. You don't have to go to Papua New Guinea or Africa or South America. You don't have to go anywhere because God wants you to be a leader. You might be a leader here at Garden Chapel. It doesn't matter where it is. God wants us to lead, and we need encouragement, and we need to make sure that we have clean hands that point to an all-sufficient God. And then it says, in the end of verse 2, it says, And bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion who made heaven and earth. And it just stops. But notice, there's a law of sowing and reaping that started the whole way back in the Old Testament and continues into the New Testament. We know it. What you plant is what you reap. What you sow is what you reap. When you bless God and bless other people, guess what happens? God turns around and blesses you. That's what it says here. May the Lord bless you. It's an encouragement to the leaders to bless the Lord, adore Him, but at the same time, we know that without God's blessing on us, we're in big trouble. And that's exactly what this is saying. May the Lord bless you from Zion. That's from the place where the temple was, who made the heavens and earth. There's nothing you're going to add to Him. He's got it all. He owns it all. He made it all. And He decides what to do with it all. And He is the one that can meet our needs. Truth is, a lot of times we want Him to meet our needs, but we don't want to put Him first. We don't want to bless Him. And it ends the Song of Ascent in that way. It's like you're going up there and the priests are going to offer the sacrifices and offerings on your behalf. You need to encourage them. But it doesn't stop there because it goes right into Psalm 135, verse 1. But it doesn't use the word bless. Now it changes to the word halal. Remember I said the great halal is uh, Psalm 136? It's the great praise psalm for all of Israel. And that's the prominent word in Psalm 135. It's the giving of a clear, distinct sound that commends, boasts, and celebrates the object of your praise. When you sing on a Sunday morning, or when you pray, or when you listen to the sermon and obey, it should be because you are giving a distinct commendation of God. When you sing, you don't just sing because, well, I can sing good, so I'm going to sing loud, or I can't sing, so I stop. You know what? It's not that at all. It's the heart attitude that goes with this. And I am going to, as the best of my ability, some of that, like me, my wife says I sing loud but not good. So, you know, put it there. I'll start with me. 
I'm not a great singer. You don't see me on the praise team or any of those things. If I have to lead singing, well, I'm desperate because nobody else is here to do it. Uh, But you know what? The point is this. We should make a distinct, clear sound in praising God. Tonight, and if you've never been to one of our, our Thanksgiving praise services, here's all we do. We'll start with a hymn or two that maybe to God be the glory or something like that. I don't know exactly what we're going to do yet. We'll read a passage of scripture and then we'll have one of the young people with a microphone in their hand. You put your hand up and you can praise the Lord for something that happened in the last year uh, or just thank the Lord for something that's going on in your life, whatever it is. You're not going to hear me preach. You're not going to hear anybody else preach. It's going to be you simply giving a distinct sound to the Lord and to anyone else who might be hearing it, that God is sufficient, that He's great, that you want to exalt Him. And it doesn't matter how you do it. It could be sung, it could be spoken, it could be a group, it can be personal. It doesn't matter. But here's the key thing. It's an unrestrained expression of how we view God, how we see His faultless character and His mighty deeds. And as you look at Psalm 135, you're going to see that over and over and over and over again as we go through. Because he is a flawless character and he has indeed done great things. His loving kindness is indeed everlasting. But we look at this and we see as we go through it what God has done. So why do we praise the Lord? Well, let's start in verse 4, if you will, please. It says there, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. You go, why do we care about Israel? I mean, we don't, you know, we're the church. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Most of the church today and almost all of the world says Israel's done. God doesn't care about Israel. God is done with Israel. I'm going to tell you it's a bunch of baloney. God hasn't stuttered or stammered, and he said what he means. Israel is his chosen nation. The Jewish people are his chosen people, and he hasn't changed his mind. You see, we can depend on God that what he says he will do. And you know what? He didn't choose Israel because they were a great nation. He didn't choose them because they were an excellent faithful people who were obedient and they would do what God asked them to do. He didn't do any of those things. In fact is, read the Old Testament and you will find out they were a bunch of problem children. They were over and over and over again doing the wrong things and being disobedient and worshiping idols and all those kinds of things. But God chose them because he decided to choose them and he didn't change his mind. And he still doesn't change his mind How do I know that? Because we haven't even gotten in life, in history, to the book of Revelation, and God is still dealing with the nation of Israel. Hasn't changed. We can know God is faithful. Loving kindness. Loyalty to His covenant. Faithful to what He has said. It hasn't changed. You want to know if Christianity, the Bible, was true, look at the history of Israel, and you will see. By the way, when they sinned, oh, he judged them big time. When they were obedient, he blessed them above and beyond all the other nations. And he will continue to do that. So why do we praise him? 
his covenant loyalty, especially as seen in the nation of Israel. You get a little shaky about your faith or what's going on in the world, just look and say, oh, Israel still exists. <laughs> God is bigger than all the problems of the world. Number two, the, in, in verse five, I'm sorry. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Are there other gods in this world? The answer is with a small g, there are all kinds of them. They come in little stone and uh, precious metal statues. They come by the way of philosophy. They come by the way of religion of all sorts. There are all kinds of gods. But they are inferior. Only one God is above and beyond all the other gods. You see, if you're worshiping one of these other gods, and it doesn't matter if it's worshiping an ancestor in a rock someplace in a, a third world country, or it's on a college campus where every philosophy says there is no God, that, that's a religion too, that's a false God because man is in control and all the false gods are invented by the imagination of man. No matter if it's a physical one or a philosophical one, doesn't matter, it's all made by man. God says, if you're stuck in one of them and your focus is on one of them, you haven't gotten to the real one. The real God is the one that's above all of those. When you worship the God of the Bible, there is no, oh, what well, did we get to the source? Because he is the self-existing eternal God. There is no one before him and no one after him. He is the bottom line. He is the first cause of everything else. And when you get that one straight in your mind, things like creation and absolute truth and all that just starts to take on a whole new meaning because God has spoken. He is faithful. He does what he says and says what he, yeah, he does what he says and says what he means. That's, that's who he is. And he is eternal and self-existing. There is no God higher than him. You can't go to a higher authority than him. We can praise the Lord that we know the truth. We know the true God. We can praise him because of that. Verse 6 goes on to say, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deeps. God does not depend on you or me for advice Direction, counsel of any sort. Praise the Lord! <laughs> I'll tell you what, he wouldn't want to come to me for advice. And guess what? Sorry I don't know all of you all that well, but those of you that I know, he's not coming to you either. You know what? He knows better than we do. Praise him for that. Acknowledge him for that. Adore him for that. And speak it out. Plainly and clearly, he is the God that doesn't need advice from us. He is sovereign. And sovereign, by the way, does not mean he makes all your decisions for you. Sovereign means he makes the rules. And there are real choices with real consequences. And if we're not willing to deal with him the way he says, we pay for it. We reject Christ. That's eternal damnation. That's the lake of fire, hell, for all eternity. That's a real consequence for a real choice. But if we trust Christ, it's heaven and his presence forever. 
And you can go right down the list of all kinds of other things that come underneath that. But there are real choices with real consequences. Why? God didn't ask you what the rules should be. He said, this is what, this is what they are. He didn't ask you, well, how do you want to worship me? He said, no, this is the way I demand it. It doesn't matter what you look at. That's the God we have. See, if he took advice from me and then he came down here and he talked to Brad, now, Brad's a good guy, but I'm sure he told God a few things different than me. You know, and then if he asked Dave Lamb, boy, that would really be a trip, right? Right, Chris? I mean, you know what? By the time it's done, we'd have a God that has schizophrenic. He'd have multiple personalities. You wouldn't know who you're worshiping. But guess what? God didn't ask any of us for direction or advice or counsel. So we can praise him because he didn't get messed up by us. That's the cool thing here. Let's continue on because we'll run out of time. These are really neat things. Verse 7 continues on that it says he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. That's evaporation. He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings forth the wind from his treasuries. We prayed for a Buffalo, New York. You know what? Didn't take God by surprise. Didn't take him by surprise. Some of my tractor pull buddies, when we go to tractor pull, they'll see the clouds in the distance and we're at a tractor pull. They said, by the way, I do not talk this way, so don't think I'm doing this. This is other guys. They said, well, did you put in a word with the big man upstairs to keep the rain away for today? I said, nope, I do not presume on the grace of God, and I am not so arrogant to tell God what to do with the weather. He knows better than I do. And if he chooses to bring rain on here and it ends this, that's his choice. And I'm going to live with it because he knows better than I do. I'm not going to do that. See, God is in control. And whatever happens, we can go, didn't take him by surprise. I can still trust him because he was before it all. Continuing on in verses 8 to 11, it simply says there that he smote the firstborn of Egypt, both men and beasts. He sent signs and wonders into the midst of uh, midst, O Egypt upon Pharaoh and his servants. He smote many nations, slew many kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, Og, the king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. He has the prerogative and the power of deliverance. In the Bible, when you talk about deliverance and power, many, many times, Psalm 136 went back and said, he delivered Israel from Egypt. I don't know if you know this or not, but if you don't, it'll really add to your story from the deliverance from Egypt is because every one of the ten plagues was against one of the major gods the people worshipped in Egypt, including the very last one. It was Pharaoh's son, the oldest son, who died. Guess what? He was the next god in line to be Pharaoh because they worshipped the Pharaoh, the king, as a god. The point is, God delivers regardless of the circumstances. You can trust him. Yesterday, yeah, yesterday, I, was, uh, going, I went to Lowe's to get some supplies for one of our apartments. As I was going into Lowe's, uh, a, an elderly black gentleman uh, came in. And he had a, a ball cap on and says, Jesus is my boss. And I thought, I'm going to say something to him. But he immediately started talking to somebody else he knew. And I thought, oh, I missed that opportunity. Well, I bought my stuff, paid for it. I was on my way out. And who do I meet right outside the door? This gentleman. And I said, 
hey, I like your boss. He goes, yeah, I only have one boss. And I thought, he's going to give me something very spiritual. He says, and I don't, my wife is not my boss. I don't even like my wife. And I'm like, oh, boy, what did I get myself in for? So I said, what do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, you know, he says, well, my wife is a crack addict, and she's been that way for 14 years, and all she does is lie and deceive me. And I'm like, wow, this guy has got a problem because he has a wife, and now I understand why he's not real pleased with his wife. We talked a little bit more about a few things, and I encouraged him that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And I said, you know what? Right there in the middle of the parking lot at Lowe's, I said, do you mind if I pray with you? He says, no, I really like that. And so I had to pray a, a word of prayer with him. I don't know what God is going to do for his wife and for his family or for his attitude or, or any of those things. All I know is when I prayed, I was saying, there's nothing I can do, but I know God delivers. God actually can make and does make a difference. And he can take somebody from Egypt or being a crack addict and bring them to life uh, for him. But continuing on in verse 12, it says, And he gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to, the, to Israel, his people. God had made promises years and years before this that it's going to be true. It didn't look like it was going to happen. See, a promise is not something that's necessarily carried out right this moment. But it's something you know is ultimately going to come to fruition. And we can know because you go, you know, all this praise and praise and thankfulness and gratitude you're talking about, you don't know my circumstance. You're exactly right. I don't. I don't know what's going on in your head, in your life. Uh, could be some very, very, very difficult things. Here's what I do know. God never backs out on his promises. We already saw that with Israel, and he's using Israel again. His promises are his legacy. See, if there's ever one promise that God made, any covenant that he made with the people that he doesn't carry out, he is not the God of the Bible. You got the wrong God. Because God is always faithful to carry out and fulfill what he says he will do. Continuing on. In verse uh, 14, it says this. It says, For God will judge his people and will have compassion on his servants. God is involved and an act of God. Having compassion when we blow it, when we sin and we confess it, he has compassion. When we're weak, he has compassion. When we willfully rebel against him and do our own thing, he brings judgment. He's involved in our lives. He is not an absentee God. He is involved in the lives of those people that, uh, of, of this earth. He never backed out. He never went out of business. He continues on. And in verse uh, 15, God, and I don't have a slide for that one. Verse 15 and following, He is a God who is not made out of gold or silver, the work of man's hands. He is not a God who doesn't have a, has a mouth but cannot speak and ears and eyes that cannot hear and see and, and a mouth that doesn't breathe. You see, he goes on to say, those that make those kind of idols become like them. I don't know if you know this or not, but you become like the God you worship. If your God is a God who meets all your needs, is sufficient, is worthy, you will live that way. 
Seriously, if you believe a God, a God is the God who forgives sin, then you'll be a forgiving person. And you'll be a person that confesses sin. If you believe he's strong, you will act in a very positive way. If you don't believe that God is who he is, your Christian life is going to be a mess because you don't really believe it. We become like the God we worship, and God has no equals. We only look to him. And God, starting in verse 19 and 20, there is, uh, God is, I'm sorry, God is never satisfied until his people turn to him. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, for example, from the New Testament. But here, what does it say starting in verse 19? O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who revere the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Notice, he says, all of Israel, you, those are his chosen people, you bless the Lord. The house of Aaron, they were the ones that were the priests that actually went into the temple and offered the sacrifices. They went into the holy place. And then he goes on to say, and the house of Levi, they were the, the bigger ones and they were the ones that would be servants and help move the tabernacle when it was being moved through the wilderness. They were the ones that would gather the firewood uh, for the sacrifices. They would provide what was needed and the cleanup and all those kinds of things so the, the priests of Aaron's lineage could do their job. He says, all of you need to bless the Lord. You need to reach out and adore Him, no matter what your position is. And then he ends with, you who revere the Lord. In other words, anyone that looks to the Lord, anyone that has awe and fear of Him for who He is, those, all of you, that should be all of you. If you're not revering the Lord today, there's a problem. Maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, and that's what you need to start with. Or maybe you just trusted Christ and decided to live for your own life, and you're not treating Him with awe and respect. You need to get that right. These are the things, if you're going to be a grateful, thankful, praising kind of person, you need to have in your life. But he ends this the same way. Praise the Lord. He closes with the same words he started with. If there's anything you need to do in this life, it's not go do some great act of humanity for somebody else or be a Billy Graham or be a missionary or be a... You know what? He says, you know what? Let's get it straight. First of all, you need to be a person who praises the Lord. Because when you're a person who praises the Lord, you're going to be doing all those other things and God may call you to do a specific thing. But praising the Lord is the bottom line of this. It's all through the Psalms. It's all through the Old Testament. And it's even in the New Testament. We are to bring sacrifices of praise to Him. That's what God says. He's never changed that. And if you are not leading others in praise, you need to look around and say, God, who do you want me to lead? Who do you want me to mentor? Who do you want me to be a good example to? Who do you want me to teach? Who do you want me to witness to? It doesn't matter. If you're not leading people spiritually, there's something wrong with your Christian life. And it is. Remember, 
I started with this, and I'm going to end with this, but I'm going to read the whole thing now. We are indeed a kingdom of priests. Actually, it says a royal priesthood. We're not just priests like the sons of Levi, the sons of Aaron, but we're a royal priesthood. Kings and priests. Royalty has not to do with priesthood. It has to do with kings. Here's what it says. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, and he's speaking to the church, you are a chosen race. All these things, by the way, are quotes from the Old Testament that were also true of Israel. But he's also saying these are also true of you as a New Testament believer. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, praise always has a focus. Blessing always has a focus, and that ultimate focus is the one who is most excellent above everything else. The one you sang about, the one we've talked about, and the one I hope that every day you thank and praise for your life and the things that uh, he has done for you. But verse 10 goes on, For you were once, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You have not gotten what you deserve. I've given you not what you deserve, but what you don't deserve. See, loving kindness covers all of this. He's a merciful God over here and a gracious God. Over here, he doesn't give us what we deserve. Over here, he gives us what we... He doesn't give us what we do deserve. Over here, he gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us the life that comes through Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted Christ, you need to understand that all of us were born sinners. We're separated from God. But Jesus Christ, in His excellency, in His mercy, sent Jesus Christ so that He could be gracious to us and offer us a gift of salvation. That gift is available to all, but we have to do something to receive it. It's called faith. I trust Him. That's faith. If you've never trusted Christ, you need to do that because you can never carry out what we just talked about. Let's all stand together as we close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a God that is loving and kind. Lord, I almost feel like we harassed people this morning by all this thankfulness stuff. But Lord, I don't think that's true because we can never praise you enough. We can never thank you enough. We can never exalt you enough because you're so much higher than anything we can even think of. And so, Lord, I pray that we've been sufficiently encouraged and challenged to be grateful, thankful people. And, Lord, if there are any here that have never trusted Christ, they don't understand the things that we talked about this morning, that they wouldn't leave without talking to myself or someone else or just right there in their pew, thanking Jesus Christ for dying for their sins and asking Him to save them from their sins and give them eternal life. Lord, I pray that you would do the perfect work that only you can do in the lives of those that you have drawn here this morning. Lord, we thank you for everything you're going to do, and we indeed want to say before you, we want to be grateful, thankful people. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go with God.